Hi, how are you? It's good to see you on a beautiful uh, spring break, long weekend, and so uh, glad that you're joining us. We're going to be in John's Gospel, chapter 10, so you want your Bibles open there. But before we dive in, uh, these last few weekends, we've been taking a little bit of time to remind you of a very important meeting coming up on April 4th. Uh, so if you've missed the last couple of weekends, I'll just throw this up there and remind you that on April 4th, we've got a special general meeting. Uh, the agenda for that meeting will be available online Tuesday night, uh, this coming Tuesday, the 21st, so two weeks in advance. Uh, so you can go online and look at the agenda for the meeting. But it's pretty straightforward. Uh, we've been talking about this for quite a while, that we want to, uh, we believe that it's time for us to build a new sanctuary. And we're well aware of the fact, though, that some of you may not have ever even seen the plans. You're wondering, what is it that we're going to be building? Uh, so this weekend at all of our sites, there are some posters out in the foyer at each one of the sites. Additionally, as you came in, hopefully you will have got one of these uh, building uh, discussion, building vision uh, that we'll show you a little bit. But I want to just throw a couple pictures up on the screen. So you've seen the outward, outside facade several times. This shot will give you a, a whole chunk of the 20-acre site and the current building. And that little white block over there on the left is the new worship center. So out back here on this side, a 2,000-seat auditorium is what we're talking about. So that's the big deal on the agenda. Then you wonder, okay, what's going to happen with this existing sanctuary? Glad you asked. Once we're into that new building, then the plan is to renovate this place into much-needed multi-youth space. So some of the challenges that we're up against is not just weekend attendances and Sunday morning in particular, fitting people into this room. So we want a bigger room for weekend. But midweek, it is almost impossible to get a room around here for midweek ministries. Literally seven days a week, there are people in the building, and particularly Monday to Friday. And so uh, how many of you were here at the beginning, the very beginning of Northview when it was just this half of the sanctuary? A uh, few of you very old people there, Rick. Yes, welcome here. Yes. So... That's what we're going back to. There will be a wall down the middle here, and this 500-seat chapel is what we're going to be left with. Uh, right now, we don't have much room for weddings and for funerals. We don't have space for that midweek, and so this chapel will give us a 500-seat auditorium. And then this other half will be renovated into much-needed multi-use space for our programs. So that's just a little bit of update on that. We've been asking you to pray. These prayer cards are there and these information pieces. And April 4th, special general meeting. Uh, get online on Tuesday and get the agenda for that, and we would love to have you out. So welcome here. Uh, welcome all of you joining us uh, in Mission and at East Abbey and uh, over at Central Abbey. Uh, on Saturday night. Glad to have you guys with us. So we are in, God, in John's chapter 10. You'll want to have your Bibles open. But before we jump in there, I want to start uh, with a very familiar psalm, Psalm 23, that says, The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down by green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of of the Lord forever. I wanted to start there because John chapter 10 is all about sheep and the shepherd. And I think Psalm 23 is probably the best known psalm that talks about the intimate relationship between God as our shepherd and we as his sheep. 
And how sheep know and follow his voice, and how the shepherd watches over his sheep. And not only providing for them green pasture and quiet waters, but also protecting them and preserving them. When in the valley of the shadow of death, that the sheep have no fear because the shepherd is walking with them even in those dark days. And that I have a secure future in the house of the Lord. So I want to suggest to you that Psalm 23 is all about the security of the believer. And there's a lot of hymns that we sing around the security of the believer, and a lot of our modern songs as well. One of my favorite old hymns from back in the 1800s, an author named Samuel Francis wrote to a minor key, kind of a haunting tune to this famous hymn. And the second verse says this, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Spread his praise from shore to shore. How he loveth, ever loveth, changes never, nevermore. How he watches o'er his loved ones, died to call them all his own. How for them he intercedeth, watches o'er them from the throne. The overarching theme of that hymn as well is that the love of God that calls us and sustains us, that our salvation has not only been purchased for us, but that it is being kept for us. That Jesus is watching over the salvation plan. And that he is going to do all that is needed to bring us safely home. So that hymn is all about the security of the believer. Psalm 23, the security of the believer. This hymn, the security of the believer. I'm so grateful uh, that God put uh, a number of older pastors in my life. When I was a, a young pastor just starting out, blessed me with the friendship of several older brothers in pastoral ministry who served as mentors for me. And I remember well a conversation with one of my friends who at that time was a pastor to seniors in his church and sitting down for a cup of coffee and the first words out of his mouth to me that day were, I hate the work of Satan. And he had my attention. And then he went on to share with me how he had just come from the bedside of an older saint who was just getting ready to pass through the veil into eternity. And a very common conversation with that dear old saint, how can I know that I am saved? How can I know that I am secure? Pastor, can I lose my salvation? And how time and time again he watched older saints laboring in those last hours and how he then as a pastor would labor with them through the scriptures to remind them that the one who calls us is faithful to finish his work to the very end. And our text today might be one of the clearest promises in the entire Bible that tells us that if Jesus has called you, he is going to keep you. In fact, if you want it down to just one little phrase, this entire message, you could put it in those words, those he calls, he keeps. Those he calls, he keeps. And so we're in John chapter 10. Uh, and while the word grace is not used in this text, this text is entirely about grace. The doctrine of God's grace that hate, Satan hates so much and tries to confuse and steal away from us because the believer who has grasped and understood the richness of God's grace cannot and will not be stopped. 
that God has made a way for sinful humans to stand in a right relationship with him and that there is no fear, there is no shame, there is no doubt, there is no guilt. We're totally aware of our sinfulness and our rebellion, but we're equally overwhelmed and convinced at the never-ending love of God toward us, and that changes everything. It's why Satan hates this doctrine. And so it's a fairly sober Opening to a spring break weekend. Welcome to church. <laughs> and yet, that is where our text is headed. And I don't know today of those listening who needs this message more than others. But it is the heart of our text, and I know that in a general sense, all of us need this anchor in the hope that Jesus promises. So we're in John 10, and in this chapter, we listen into a conversation about sheep and shepherds, and we come to the next of the seven I am statements. So we've been saying all the way through this book, there are seven statements, seven metaphors Jesus uses. We've already seen I am the bread of life, and I am the light of the world. And in this chapter, we get two more I am statements. I am the gate, I'm the door for the sheep, and I am the good shepherd. So we're going to read through the text, make a quick pass, and then try to apply it. The first six verses say, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So we're jumping into a conversation. Jesus begins to talk about sheep, and in essence, he's like, let me tell you about something you're all familiar with in this agrarian culture, surrounded by fields and surrounded by sheep and shepherds at all times. And they would have known the story that at night, a shepherd, if he wants to go home to spend the night with his family, will bring the sheep into the city. So there's actually two types of sheepfold that this text is going to talk about. The first is a sheepfold that is inside the city walls. So the shepherd brings the sheep in through the gates of the city. The gates are closed, secure at night. But within the city, there is also a sheep pen, a fence with a gate and a watchman, a gatekeeper. So the shepherd can take the sheep to the pen, walk through the gate. The gatekeeper will close the gate, watch over them. And the shepherd then can go home for a day or two off. Enjoy time with the family, eat and sleep, and, and spend some time and rest while the sheep are being watched over in the sheepfold. The next day or a day later, he goes back. The gatekeeper recognizes him. He's one of the shepherds. They open the gate, and then he makes his lyrical sound, some voice sound that the sheep know the shepherd's voice, and his sheep come out of the pen, and he leads them out, and they follow him. It's pretty straightforward. The early audience would have known all about it. And verse 6 is sort of like, uh, so what, Jesus? So what? What's this talk about sheep and shepherds? Uh, we get it. Tell us something we don't know. They weren't tracking with him. So he goes on. And he uses the same theme, but he changes the metaphor slightly in the next few verses. When he says, so Jesus said again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. 
If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from the Father. There was again division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon. He's insane. Why listen to him? And others said, these aren't the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Another story about sheep and a sheepfold, but it's different from the first. Because this sheepfold is out in the fields. This is not the fold inside the city walls. So there are times and places when the shepherd is further away from the village, further away from the city, out in the pasture lands, and he overnights with the sheep out in the pastures. And so to keep the sheep safe, the shepherds would gather them into a sheepfold, not like the one in the city, not with a, a fence and a gate, but literally they would pile rocks together. So we've got an image of what it may have looked like. A sheepfold with these rocks piled up and maybe some brambles or some branches, but a safety place for the sheep out in the fields and just one gap whereby the sheep can get in and out. And the thieves and the robbers and the animals can't get in. No gate, just that single gap. And the shepherd would gather the sheep into the fold and then camp out for night. And literally, he would camp at the door or at the gap or at the gate. In other words, the shepherd became the gate. The shepherd became the door. He literally laid across the door, maybe built a fire there. If there were other shepherds in the area, they might put their flocks together in that same fold, and then there would be two or three, and thank goodness, because then some of them could get some sleep while others kept watch over the night. But they stood in that gap. They stood in the gate. The shepherd was literally the door, and the sheep came in and out through him. He led them out to pasture by day and in to safety by night, and the thief and the robber and the predators that might kill and kill and destroy would have to get through the shepherd himself to get at the sheep. And it's significant that Jesus says the phrase three times, I lay my life down. I lay my life down. In a very literal sense, the shepherd lays down across that gap, lays down his life, and taking the risk literally in fighting off wild animals. Uh, it, it puts the phrase, over my dead body, kind of to mind, right? You're going to get at my sheep over my dead body. And Jesus states his case pretty simply when he says, I'm the good shepherd. And he's picking up an Old Testament prophecy 
of our need for a greater shepherd than fallible human shepherds. And Ezekiel, a word of rebuke from the Lord, says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy against the spiritual leaders of Israel. You have not cared for my sheep. And then he goes on, probably the strongest words of rebuke for spiritual leaders, when he says, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them. I will bring them out from the peoples. I will feed them with good pasture. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. Notice the I, 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 I. The Lord saying, I am going to shepherd my sheep because these earthly shepherds have failed. You've been bad shepherds. Yeah, dad joke. I know it's bad. So I am going to come and shepherd my sheep myself. And Jesus here declares himself as a fulfillment of that Old Testament prophecy, I am the great shepherd of the sheep that Ezekiel is talking about. And then he makes this astounding promise when he says, I will lay my life down for the sheep. And we know that he is referring to his willing sacrificial death that will come just a few months from now. That he will offer himself as a substitute. And while the Jewish leaders condemn him and the Roman soldiers execute him, make no mistake that his death was a willing and voluntary sacrifice. He said, I am the one who lay it down, and I have the authority to pick it up again. I am the victorious one. No part of this crucifixion took part outside of God's plan. I lay my life down and I have the authority to pick it up again. So they still don't get it. And there's division among them. And the conversation goes on. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication. It's the only time that this festival is mentioned in the entire scripture. It is not a Jewish festival that pilgrimage is required. It is what modern day is called the Feast of Hanukkah, which comes around pretty well every December. If you're watching, you will see the Feast of Hanukkah. And, and it's not salient to the text, but just give you a little bit of the background on this particular feast. It is a celebration of the rededication of the temple that happened in AD 164, and you're like, well, who cares? Well, it's in the text. So do you know a guy named Alexander the Great? Anybody remember that name? Anybody know the guy? <laughs> Alexander the Great expanded the Greek Empire to its greatest expansion from Western Europe all the way to Northern India. Alexander the Great. He was called that because he was indeed great. But he died young. 
And on his deathbed, they divided the kingdom into four different regions, four different kingdoms. And come around by AD 200, there is a king in Syria, just north of Jerusalem, named Antiochus Epiphanes. And he decides it's time to invade Jerusalem and squish out those Jewish people and push their religion to the side. And so with all his armies, he invades Jerusalem and he desecrates their temple. And he desecrates their temple by going into it and offering to Zeus the sacrifice of a pig. So you know a pig's blood on the altar would be anathema to the Jews. And then he literally sets up his throne room in the temple. He makes the temple in Jerusalem his palace, and the Jews come to call him the abomination of desolation. And if you've read the book of Daniel, you know who they're referring to. These four kings that arise after that Persian empire and one of their descendants who's now in the temple setting it up as a throne. And God raises up a man named Judas Maccabeus and he has a nickname, The Hammer. It's a good Mennonite name. <laughs> and Maccabeus rallies the Jewish people. He rallies them to arms and they are far outnumbered. But they go up against the Greek armies, they defeat them, they purge and purify the temple, and in the winter of A.D. 164, they rededicate the temple, and it's near our Christmas time, December, and they celebrate the lighting of the lamps for the first time in a long season. The menorah is lit in, in, lit in the temple, but the problem is this. They only have oil enough for one day, and it's an eight-day celebration. And legend tells us that that oil that was supposed to last just one day burned for eight days solid. And so there's two menorahs that you will see. You will see a seven-stand menorah, and then you will see one, I think we've got an image of it, a nine-stand menorah, and it is used specifically during the Feast of Hanukkah because those eight symbols on either side represent the eight days of the feast and the oil that kept going, and then the one candle in the middle is whereby they light all the others. That's the background. That's the story. Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication, and he asks these questions. He has asked these questions. How long are you going to hold out on us? Tell us, are you the Christ? And he's like, you know what? I've already told you that. Over and over again, I have told you that many times before, but you're not listening because you cannot hear. And besides what I've told you, my works testify for me. My miracles. I healed the lame man at Bethesda. I gave sight to the blind man who washed in the pool of Siloam. Remember, I turned water into wine. I fed 5,000. I walked on water and many other signs recorded in the Gospels. But you don't believe me because you're not among my sheep. And then our text reaches this great crescendo. The high point in this story are verses 27 to 29, and these verses are loaded with hope and with power and with assurance. Because what we see in these few verses goes to the core question of our Christian faith, and it is this question, how does one get right with God? How does that happen? And what we see in these verses are three powerful principles underneath the umbrella of salvation, and they are these, that Jesus calls, and Jesus saves, and Jesus keeps. He calls, he saves, and he keeps. 
And so the first is this in verse 27 when he says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Jesus calls them. They hear his voice. And what Jesus is pointing to here is that the work of God's providence in our lives is to call us to spiritual life. In fact, the only way we come to faith in God is to be called by the Spirit of God. To be called from death into life. And so we might ask the question, are you a follower of Jesus? Have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? And, and supposing that you would say yes to that question, then the question that would follow would be, and how did that happen? How did that happen? And not talking about the circumstances. Not talking about, well, I heard a message. Or someone gave testimony or witness to me. A friend shared their story. Or I randomly picked up the Bible and I started to read and it made sense. Not talking about the circumstances. Because many, many people have those same circumstances. But what was the story behind the story? What was going on behind the scenes? What made you different from other people who might have heard the very same message, who might have heard the very same witness and testimony, who may have read the very same verses of Scripture, and it didn't make any sense to them? They didn't believe what was different for you. There are three primary metaphors that the New Testament uses to describe our lives outside of faith. Now prepare to be encouraged. These are the three words, slavery, death, and blindness. The three primary word pictures in the New Testament for us outside of faith in Christ. That outside of God's working in our lives that we are held captive to sin. Literally, that we're slaves, that we have no choice but to obey the words of our slave master. But God goes into the slave market, and he buys us back, and he adopts us as his children. Woo! That outside God's work in our lives, we're dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 says. What do dead people do? Not a lot. But God, it says, who's rich in mercy made us alive. Outside God's working in our lives, we're trapped in darkness. We're blind. We can't see the things of God. We lack the capacity to see and understand. But then 2 Corinthians 4 says, but the very same God who said, let there be light in creation, put the sun and the moon and the stars in place, spoke into our hearts and said, let there be light in that heart. Let them see. And as a result of those three, slavery, death, and blindness, the scripture calls us children of wrath. But God in his mercy breaks the chains, raises the dead, and gives sight to the blind. That's what he does. John Piper, I love this quote. He says, if there's any hope that our hard, rebellious, insubordinate, dead hearts will ever come to trust and treasure Jesus, something so radical will have to happen to us that one could call it a new birth. Or a life-giving call out of the grave or a new creation. Jesus calls his sheep and his sheep hear his voice and they follow him. Secondly, we see in this text Jesus saves. Verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And embedded in the greater text that we read is the background to this text. That Jesus says that he does for us 
what we cannot do for ourselves. He says three times, I laid my life down for the sheep. I laid my life down for the sheep. I lay my life down and I have authority to pick it up again. Uh, That for is on behalf of. I'm doing it in place of. Uh, John 15, 13 is another use of this very same word. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for, on behalf of his friends, takes their place. And what this points to is the vicarious, willing, sacrificial substitution in our place, the death of Jesus Christ, which is a centerpiece of the scriptures. And central to the Christian faith that God says, I will let somebody else pay your debt. Who would do that? And the only way that we come to faith, the only way we come to faith, if Jesus accomplishes it by calling us, and secondly, by making it possible with his satisfactory atonement for our sin. So he says there, I give them eternal life, and he's referring to the miracle of new birth. The miracle that is accomplished when he steps between us and the wrath of God and absorbs the wrath of God and then said, now you can let these ones go free, Father. I have paid the penalty. Woo! Yes. The Old Testament. The spotless lamb taken from the flock. Its blood was shed to cover over sin for a period. In the New Testament, it is Jesus, the spotless lamb, whose blood is shed, and our sins are not just covered over, they are taken away for good, once and for all. But the text goes further. If Jesus calls us, and if Jesus saves us, then we must also know that Jesus keeps us. Verse 28 and 29 I give them eternal life, they'll never perish. Now here's the key phrase, and no one, no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. The promise that we have there is that we are secure in the hand of Jesus. And do you see the the double We're secure in the hand of Jesus, and then the Father's hand is wrapped over Jesus' hand. We're secure in Jesus' hand. We're secure in the Father's hand. And before, did you see the note? Before we belong to Jesus, we actually belong to the Father. It was the Father who gave us to Jesus, verse 29 says. It's a theme that's repeated all the way through John's gospel. Back in John chapter 6, we looked at it a few weeks ago. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The ones the Father gives to me. In fact, that text goes on to say, in fact, nobody comes to me unless the Father draws them. And near the end of the book, when Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer, he says, I've manifested your name to the people, Father, whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. What it tells us is that God the Father had already ordained and called those that he is going to give to Jesus. The Father does a work in our lives in calling us from death to life. In other words, just put it like this. The Father somehow is able to change us from a a rebel to a worshiper. From an enemy into a friend. He gives spiritual sight to blind eyes. He replaces a a stone-cold, hard heart with a heart of flesh. So Ezekiel, that rebuke to the shepherds, goes on a couple chapters later 
talking about the hard hearts of God's people. And then the Lord says, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. What stands out so clearly as we read that text is what I, 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 I will do, says the Lord. The working of God in the life of hard-hearted people. I will sprinkle. I will clean. I'm going to do heart surgery on you. And notice at the beginning... I'm not doing it because there is any good thing in you. I'm doing it for the glory of my name, period. So what John says in John chapter 10 is very straightforward. Jesus saying to us, I call them, I save them, and I keep them. And so when Satan comes knocking and accusing and condemning, we anchor our souls here that the one who has called us can also keep us. That we belong to the Father and he gives us to Jesus and no one can snatch us out of his hand and no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand doubly secure. And I don't know who needs this message, particularly this weekend. But I know that the Spirit of God knows. You see, there's two voices that typically condemn us. And one is the voice of self-condemnation. Who am I? Who am I that the Lord of the universe should love me? I know myself all too well. I know the true condition of my heart. I know where I've been and what I've done. And as I look back in my life, there's much shame and there is much regret. How could I ever think that a holy God would love someone like me? The second voice is the voice of the accuser. Revelation 12 calls Satan by that name, the accuser. He is the one who whispers. He is the one who mocks. And if he cannot keep us from Christ, then he will seek to steal our joy in Christ and to cloud our minds with accusations and doubts. Who are you to think that God could love you? Romans 8, I love it because it smashes those voices to smithereens. Romans 8, 1, there's... Therefore, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It goes on to say, for those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now listen to this last phrase. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. If God calls you, he is going to justify you. He is going to glorify you. It's all his work. He is going to do it. He's going to call you. He's going to keep you. He's going to justify you. He's going to glorify you. He's going to conform you to the image of his Son. Amen? And then it goes on to say then, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? If it is God who justifies, who is to condemn? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I am the good shepherd, and I call you, and I keep you. So every Easter, as we approach 
Easter every year, I am reminded of an old, old sermon that I read as a young man, and it just jumped off the page at me, a sermon, an Easter sermon given by Melito of Sardis in the year AD 195, and no, I was not there. But that Easter sermon came to this great conclusion with these phrases, and he said this, but he rose from the dead and mounted up to the heights of heaven. When the Lord had clothed himself with humanity and had suffered for the sake of the sufferer and had been bound for the sake of the condemned and buried for the sake of the one who was buried, he rose up from the dead and cried with a loud voice, who is he that contends with me? Let him stand in opposition to me. I set the condemned man free. I gave the dead man life. I raised up one who had been entombed. Who is my opponent? I, he says, am the Christ. I am the one who destroyed death and triumphed over the enemy and trampled Hades underfoot and bound the strong one and carried off man to the heights of heaven. I, he says, am the Christ. Wow, what an Easter sermon, eh? If Jesus calls us and that's the only way we come to faith, and if Jesus saves us and that's the only way we're saved, then we know that he will keep us. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Spread his praise from shore to shore. How he loveth, ever loveth, changes never, nevermore. How he watches o'er his loved one, died to call them all his own. How for them he intercedeth and watches o'er them from his throne. So dear child of God, if the enemy is knocking at your door, I plead with you, send him to Jesus. Send him to Jesus. And anchor yourself here in the truth of God's word that your salvation is not up to you. Your salvation is not in your hands, but it is in the hands of the Father. Jesus calls. Jesus saves. And he keeps. Just stand together with me. I want to pray for you. The teams will come and lead us. So, Father, I don't know in our audiences this weekend who needs this particular message, but I know, Lord, that this is a common theme among your people. And I know that it is a common strategy of the enemy to come alongside as the accuser of the brethren, to whisper in our ears doubt and shame and regret and fear. Who are you to believe that God would love you? And, oh, Father... Give us the strength by your spirit to send him straight to the feet of Jesus and to say, you go ask those questions of Jesus, my Savior. Because it was Jesus who laid his life down in my place as my substitute. It was Jesus who lived a sinless life that I could never live, and then he offered that life willingly, sacrificially. He absorbed the wrath of God in my place, and then he turned around and he said, I did it for you. So I'm with Jesus. Father, may you seal that in our hearts and minds. May we never, never, never question the fact that if you have hold us in your hands, no one can snatch us away. I ask this blessing for our congregation. In Jesus' name, amen.